This is Dollars and Change, a podcast about the intersection of business and social impact. Brought to you by the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. Welcome to Dollars and Change. I'm Catherine Klein, Vice Dean for Social Impact at Wharton. And I'm delighted to be speaking today with Davis Smith, the CEO and co-founder of Cotopaxi. Cotopaxi is a gear brand with a humanitarian mission at its core. Uh, And Davis is also a Wharton alum. We love talking to our alumni on the show uh, often. So welcome. Thanks, Catherine. I appreciate it. This is going to be fun. This is going to be fun. So you described when I just asked you, like, what's the the best succinct way to describe Cotopaxi? You said, you know, you're a brand with a humanitarian mission at its core. And I know do good is the creed at at Cotopaxi. So I'd, I'd love to dig into what doing good means for, you know, an outdoor gear brand, a capitalist company. Um, what, sure. what does do good mean for your company? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, maybe, maybe first I'll start by just saying that this was a, an evolution and, and kind of a journey for me as well in learning how to do good through business. Uh, I'd known from the time I was a child that I wanted to use my life to help others. I, I moved to the Dominican Republic when I was four years old and spent all of my childhood in Latin America and a lot of my adult life. And um, when I was in college, I went to college in, in the United States in undergrad, and I met uh, a, a successful businessman, an entrepreneur who had dedicated his life to, to fighting poverty. In the, and he started in the Philippines teaching entrepreneurship to people living in extreme poverty. And I wanted to work for him. Uh, I thought that's what my life should be is, is focused on, on this kind of work. And I, I tried to convince him to let me work for him and to expand his program from the Philippines to Latin America, where I'd grown up. And, um, you know, he instead convinced me that I should become an entrepreneur and that I could use business to find a way to have an impact on the world. And it was really great advice. I'd never really considered entrepreneurship as a career path, but uh, I spent the next 10 years building a couple, a couple different businesses. Um, I, I built a, a business called PoolTables.com, which I, I did before business school. And then after I graduated from Wharton, I moved down to Brazil and built a, a business called Baby.com.br. And it was while I was in Brazil that I, that I had the idea for building a brand that was all about giving back. And uh, I landed on the outdoor industry. I'm an outdoorsman, love the adventure and travel and the, out, and the outdoors and nature. And thought, you know, there's a, a, it's a very saturated market, but there's a space here to go build a brand that's about giving back and it's about helping people, not just about protecting the environment. I think that's very important. Um, but I think, you know, th- these two things are very interlinked. There's, there's no way to save the planet if you're not saving humanity at the same time. And so, mm-hmm. so I just, I decided to build this brand, but, you know, we, we built impact into every aspect of the, and into the very DNA of the brand and business. It's not just, uh, on the periphery of the business, it's not an afterthought. It's not just a buy one give one model. It's it's truly interwoven into everything that we do, uh, into our supply chain, into our giving, into our culture. Um, even you know, if you order a backpack or jacket from us on our website or or in one of our retail stores, you get a handwritten thank you card written by a refugee that's been resettled. It's their very first job. They write it in their native language. They're still learning English. So every little touch point with the brand uh, is, is, is an experience where you get to see the impact that we're having. 
that, that's uh, that's fantastic, and I I'm, I know it resonates with your uh, with your customers. I didn't know. So I want to unpack this, but I am intrigued by the refugee uh, piece because I did not know this. So, where are you employing refugees? Are these are refugees who who uh, come into the U.S. Uh, or where are they? Where are they employed? What capacity? Yeah, yeah. So we have a number of different programs we've done over the years, but within the first year of the business. I originally started the business. I was writing thank you cards to anyone that ordered from us. And I knew that wasn't scalable, but I thought it was important in those early days. And um, I got to the point where I wasn't able to do them anymore. And we had the idea of of working with refugees in our local community. Mm -hmm. Uh, Salt Lake City has had tens of thousands of refugees settled here over the last 20 years. And I felt there was an opportunity to, to have an impact there. So we started working with the IRC, the International Rescue Committee. And we created a job club where refugees that were just brand new arrived that were resettling um, could join the job club. And our team would volunteer to teach them how to create a resume and how to do a job interview. Mm-hmm. And they could be placed working for Cotopaxi in their very first job. And uh, they would write thank you cards and they could do it. At, at first, we they do it uh, in our office or in the IRC's office. And then um, they started being able to do it at home. And it was you know a way for them. To, they could actually make pretty good money. And uh, probably two thirds or three quarters of the of the refugees that do it are women, so they're able to do it when their children are in school or in the evenings, and so they're able to make the supplemental income for their families and and start to get uh, some work experience on the resume. And so we've had over uh, over two hundred refugees that have participated in this program um, over the years, and it's uh, you know it's just one of the most it's one of the most uh, one of the things I'm most proud of. It's really a special a really special opportunity for us to get to know these amazing refugees and help them get their life started. And we've developed some really special relationships with them yeah. over the years. Yeah, that's very cool. So let's, let's digging into your model and the way in which the, you know, do good is manifest in, in all aspects of the company. I thought we could break this down into products, kind of employment and culture, supply chain and philanthropy. So let's, let's start with products. Um, focus a lot on sustainably designed creating sustainably designed outdoor products. Uh, you know, for right, that in a day in which we, we, we worry about companies engaged in greenwashing, what ends are big words, what does that actually mean for you? If I'm buying a backpack, if I'm buying a, uh, a parka jacket fleece from Cotopaxi. Yeah, you know, it, I will first say there's a number of different ways that we have impact through the supply chain. And uh, every place that we work is a little bit different. And every... We don't have like a cookie cutter answer where it's like, okay, every factory we work with, we're going to make them do this, or we're going to have this happen. Um, We really go and assess every partner and see how we can help. And so we have some factories that are fair trade factories that really um, do a great job already in a lot of ways, but we see where we can have further impact and where we can, we can help them do better. Um, We have other factories that are not fair trade certified, but that have a history of treating employees really well. For example, our pack factories in the Philippines, their average sewer has been there for 11 and a half years. It's a place that pays well. Mm-hmm. Um, they have uh, volleyball and basketball clubs and they have, uh, it's just, a, it's a really fun place to work. It, at the same time, when we were there, we saw two big problems. There was a lot of waste material that was cre- that was left over from the manufacturing, cutting and sewing process from our brand and from many other brands that mm-hmm. outdoor brands that use the same factory. The second problem we saw was that a lot of these uh, factory workers 
um, they're incredible artisans and craftsmen, these sewers, and they never had the ability and the, the, the power to choose what they wanted to sew or design product on their own. They were just simply told by people like us what to sew. And so we wanted to change that. So we, we went to them, we said, Hey, we want to use all this remnant material that's left over from other brands. And we want to empower you to, to sew the bags and to create. And so uh, the only rule we're going to give you is to make no bag alike, but you can use any colors you want, any materials you want. And this has kind of become a, uh, the kind of the iconic Cotopaxi bag is this like really funky colors and color blocking. And, um, you know, this line of bags, which is a huge part of our product line is made of remnant materials. And so it's got this great environmental story and this great story of empowering um, sewers to, to be able to use their creative voice. Um, uh, we have another factory in China where, uh, which we're really proud of. Um, we have a community garden that we built there where the, where the factory workers can take those vegetables and fruits home. Uh, they don't live at the factory, unlike a lot of the factories in China. Uh, that was by design. This the owner of the factory, which we just absolutely love. He worked for another outdoor brand in one of these factories where everyone lived at the factory. And he decided at some point, like he he had his own child, and he's like, I, "This is horrible. Like these people don't see their children until Chinese New Year. They see their children like two or three weeks of the month or of, of the year." And so um, he decided he wanted to build a factory in one of these communities where a lot of the sewers were coming from. And so. They live at home and they come to work. Uh, one of the unique things about it was that one of the challenges was transportation. How do you get all these factory workers to the factory every day and then home every day um, when, you know, normally that wasn't something they had to work, you know, deal with if, if everyone just lived at the factory. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these people wouldn't have, you know, they're not necessarily middle class or rising yeah. middle class yet. And so, you know, they didn't have their own vehicles, but he made a deal with these sewers where if they were willing to uh, go pick up seven other uh, fact, you know, co-workers in this community before they came to work. And if they dropped them off, he would give them a, a stipend, which allowed them to buy a little minivan. And so you go to this factory and there's like a parking lot full of these little minivans. And I have this really fun picture of all these uh, sewers holding up their keys of their car. And they are so proud, you know, they have, they have their own car. And so it's really fun to see the impact that you can have through business by just thinking a little bit differently. When you describe these factories in your supply chain, I'm curious whether these factories are only serving Cotopaxi or they're serving other brands and how that shapes the kind of influence you can have on the factory, the way the factories operate. Yeah, they, they do serve other brands. None of our factories work exclusively with us. And I think that's pretty common among any, yeah. um, really any consumer brand. Um, but, you know, what we found is that we can, we can have, influence you know even if other brands are not choosing to invest in certain areas like for example that uh you know that community garden um you know it didn't cost that much money to go put that together and uh we were able to go make a small impact and so um you know we're able to go into a, a factory line and say hey this is what we want it to look like this is how we want the employees to be treated and these are some areas where we see some, uh, some opportunity for improvement and um so yeah, and that you know, I think everyone benefits from that as well, yeah, not just us. So I think that's I think that's important as well. It's not just about us doing things right. It's about trying to move the entire industry forward in a better way. Right. And the world of fast fashion is a you know it's, it's terrible for the environment. Um, and yet you know you are a company that is building outdoor gear and including clothing. How do you build sustainability and, and combat the kind of concerns that that many of us know? exist in the fashion industry. Yeah. 
Yeah, this was, you know, this was honestly really eye-opening for me as I got into the space. This wasn't an industry, uh, you know, apparel and bags that I that I was really fam- that familiar with. Uh, I knew I understood e-commerce and um, consumer products, but not quite in this space. And so as I as I started the business, I had to learn a lot about it. And this is one of the areas where I felt we could do a lot better than it was what was being done. Um, we're really proud that, you know, although our mission is really people focused and humanitarian and poverty focused versus environmentally focused, mm-hmm. the reason I, I chose that is that I really felt protecting the environment is just table stakes. That's not a competitive advantage. That's something that we all have to do. Um, and so, you know, 94% of our products last year were made of remnant, recycled, or responsibly made material. Uh, a huge percentage of that is remnant. And so mm-hmm. um, we just, and that was our very first product. Our first bag was made of remnant material. This is something we've been doing from, you know, since we started in 2014. Um, we knew we needed to think differently. You know, the, the idea of like creating virgin, you know, polyesters and everything all the time and all the, the dyeing process is very damaging to the environment. And so, uh, you know, our, our footprint, our, our carbon footprint and our footprint on like ne- that's negatively impacting the environment is very, very low compared to any brand our size. And uh, we're continuing to push the envelope. You know, we're you know, with our designers. We're constantly thinking about how we can design and think differently about how we make products. And so, uh, are we perfect? Of course not. We're not. Uh, but I think we're doing things in a way that many have never done before. And we're hoping that we can help continuing to to lead the way and thinking about how we do capitalism differently. Uh, we have to do better because we're destroying our planet and uh, we're leaving people behind. And you know this this really rat race of trying to create more profit. And that's just not, that shouldn't be what business is about. Mm-hmm. So you've described some of the ways doing good shows up in your products and your supply chain. What about your, you know, the, your employment and your culture? I'm sure I, I know you're an attractive employer. What are the things when you, you know, you brag about when, if I invite you to brag about what's different and special about working for Cotopaxi? Yeah. Um, from the beginning of the business, we knew that we had to build great culture. And you do that by having very clearly defined values. Um, and we did that before we sold a single product. We knew what our values were. We built rituals and traditions around those values that really reinforced them. So you, you know, of course, that a lot of the company values feel like they're a dime a dozen. Mm-hmm. Tell yeah, us and about I think your values and how do you get around that? Yeah, I think one of the big reasons why they feel that way is because oftentimes it's some words on a wall, but when it comes down to it, it's like, do people actually feel like that's how you live? Mm-hmm. Like, is that, does that, has that shaped behaviors and outcomes? And, um, you know, for us, we, you know, we defined those values. And this is something I didn't do in my first two businesses. I didn't do this well. And I understood that I needed to do it better. And so with Cotopaxi, uh, again, before we sold a single product, we had, we got together with our founding team and, uh, we went through an exercise of identifying the values that we stood for, and we wanted to build, uh, you know, these rituals and traditions that shaped our culture and shaped our brand mm-hmm. um, in a really intentional way. And so, um, you know, our, our core values are people, uh, adventure, and innovation, and we've built some really fun traditions around those things. And so, everything from we have uh, we have a committee that's led by our employees that that's around social impact, and we, every month we have what we do volunteer uh, volunteering together uh, we have you can spend 10% we have this something called 10% in the wild time where you can spend 10% of your work week uh, volunteering or uh, out in the wild so if it's a powder day and you know we live in Utah so you can go skiing but 
Uh, a lot of our team uses that time uh, each week to go volunteer, uh, including me. And so, um, you know, we've really tried to build these really strong traditions around our business. And, uh, you know, with COVID, everything changed. You know, a lot of those rituals and traditions had to be rethought. And, right. Um, you know, we started doing virtual hiking, you know, where what, a certain hour of the week, everyone would dial into a Zoom call wherever you were at. And we, everyone would go for a walk around uh, a park or around their block or maybe on a little trail near their home. And, um, you know, we found ways to continue to live those values um, even during that, you know, during a challenging time. And what about your philanthropy? How does this work? You have a code of foundation. Explain how, you know, how you fund the foundation, how you make decisions about where the foundation gives. Yeah, we started the business without a foundation, um, but with giving as part of the, mm-hmm. the business model. Uh, but a few years into the business, we saw that there was an opportunity to, to do have a greater impact because we had so many employees uh, and other companies and customers that were saying, hey, I'd love to donate myself to this cause that we're, that you're, mm-hmm. that you we're working on. And you know, we didn't really have a mechanism to accept customer donations, for example, if someone said, hey, could I donate an extra five or $10 mm-hmm. to support this cause of fighting poverty? Uh, there was no way for us to do it. And so by creating the foundation, it allowed us to um, to accept donations. And so, you know, this this last month alone, we had $7,500 donated from customers. These are small donations, five and $10 donations uh, to support Afghan refugees. And um you know, we're going to extend that into October and Cotopaxi is matching the, those donations and then giving some on top of that as well. Um, but that, you know, before we had the foundation, that wasn't really something that we could do. Uh, but the the foundation is mostly funded by us. We, we, we contribute a minimum of 1% of revenues. Um, and in the early days of the business, the first five or so years of the business, that meant all of our profits and more. Uh, so it was a it was a big sacrifice. It was a big commitment. You know, our our it was something we had to convince our board that it made sense. And um, you know, but last year we you know as, as our business kind of crossed into profitability the last few years, and uh, you know we saw an opportunity for us to do more good. And so last year we gave uh, almost three percent of revenue. So for us, it's not about giving the minimum and making a commitment and then kind of giving that. It's like finding out how do we how do we give the most we can possibly give? How do we have it, the greatest impact possible? And if we have a better year, you know, maybe that's an opportunity for us to do more. That's great. Um, so speaking of these things, um, the last year, opportunities to give more. How has COVID affected your business? This is, a, this is um, I mean, obviously, it's been an incredibly difficult time for many businesses and, and required a lot of pivoting. Yeah. And we're, you know, I guess we're not alone. Uh, we certainly had a lot of headwinds, especially in the early days of the pandemic, those first few months. Uh, our hero product is a travel bag. So with no one traveling, that obviously took a big, big hit. Um, we had uh, our retail stores uh, were closed. We had our, our retail partners like REI and hundreds of other retailers that were all closed for a number of months. Um, you know, a decent part of our business is also corporate products. So like, you know, a company like Google or Adobe might say, hey, we want to make a bunch of bags or jackets for our team for an upcoming event. Uh, those all got canceled. So, you know, about 50% of our revenue disappeared overnight. And, um, you know, it was a time where we could either be fear focused or strategy focused. And we made a decision to, to stick to our strategy. And we uh, we actually made a shirt uh, that raised money for COVID response. And we donated 100% of, of, uh, of those 
those gains, you know, to, to COVID response, we started making face masks where we donated a mask uh, for every mask that we sold. We donated a mask to a community in need somewhere in the developing world generally. Uh, and so we ended up selling around a million masks. Uh, so, you know, through that pivoting and through thinking differently about how we can have an impact, uh, the business was able to respond in a unique way. And we had a lot of people that chose to support our brand because of the way that we responded. Uh, and instead of just focusing on ourselves, really focusing on our community and how we could help others. And so um, it was an interesting year for sure. We we saw uh, we saw 35% growth in 2020, which uh, it's our slowest growth year to date, but all things considered, we were very, very pleased with how it turned out. It could have been much, much different. Yeah. And, and what do you think stays going forward? I mean, this is still an uncertain time, obviously, in terms of, you know, how, how far have we come in this country and managing the COVID, is, you know, remains, it remains uncertain. Um, but what do you see sticking uh, of lessons learned from COVID? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things. I mean, I'd say specifically for me and for Cotopaxi, uh, you know, we shifted to a remote first workforce and I was actually the biggest believer in working from the office. I never worked from home even once uh, before the pandemic. I believed in being in the office. I felt we needed that if we wanted yeah. to build great culture and great traditions as a team. And um, we were very close to each other, and that was an important part of our our business. And you know, we'd, we'd see 500 to 1,000 applicants per job opening, and I felt it was because we built this really great culture. And um, but when the pandemic began, we all started working from home, and what I saw was that actually we were more efficient. Our team was more efficient, and we had to be really creative around how to create this you know connectivity. Yeah. And we've done all these really fun things both vir virtually and, and now starting in person as well. We had a Cotopaxi summer camp a few months ago where we brought everyone in from around the country and we did all these really fun outdoor activities for a few days and kind of reminiscent of, of summer camp as a kid. And, um, you know, we have all these new traditions that we've created, but, um, you know, what's going to stay is that, you know, we started hiring our team all over the country instead of just people willing to move to Utah. So we have a more diverse team and, uh, you know, we find all these really great benefits. Uh, you know, I get to see my my kids more often as, as a dad. And when I take a quick break, like I'm running into them when I have lunch, I can have lunch with my my little kids or with my wife. And so these are really fun things that mm -hmm. I, I mean, this is a gift. It really was. This, this, tra this transformed the way that I at least thought uh, things had to be done. And I thought, uh, thought things had to be done a certain way. And it turns out that wasn't true. Yeah. Um, so it was a, yeah, really interesting. A really interesting last couple of years, for sure. So this past month, early in September, the news was announced that Bain Capital Double Impact has invested uh, $45 million into Cotopaxi's growth. So obviously a, 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 a very big deal, uh, a large impact investment from this, this fund. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about you know, what this means to you and where Cotopaxi is going, and also a little bit about you know. How does an investment like this uh, occur? You know, pulling back the curtains to understand a little bit more about the process that culminates in the announcement of, of an investment like this. Yeah, well, obviously, it's a it's a very exciting time for us as a brand. Um, I think what makes me most excited is proving that doing good and doing well are not mutually exclusive. When I was fundraising for this business, I hadn't sold anything yet, but I had this, I had a PowerPoint and a big vision of what I wanted to build. I pitched a hundred different investors. Um, 
VCs, impact investors, angel investors, and I got a lot of notes. And a lot of them questioned whether a, a business could give away money before it ever made money and be sustainable. And what we've shown is that, yes, it can. It can be done. Uh, and so we're very proud of that. And, uh, you know, this, this investor specifically is one we're very excited about. We got to know them about five years ago. Uh, the, they launched this new fund, uh, Bain Capital did, called, called Double Impact. And a bunch of uh, partners and other people from Bain Capital opted in to go start this fund and be a part of it. They were all passionate about social impact and wanted to prove that things could, you don't have to compromise on return either. You know, these, it's not like the, 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 the bar is lower for this fund. They expect to return just as well as, uh, you know, the funds just as well as all these other funds. But they're going to they want to focus on brands that are doing good in the world and businesses that are thinking differently about capitalism. And so um, we heard about them. And one of our board members, Ellie Wheeler, she uh, knew she went to business school with one of the people there. So we got connected. And um, uh, that person, his name's Jacob Donnelly. He actually flew out to Salt Lake to meet us. And uh, he said, Hey, can we go backpacking together? And we're like, Oh yeah. Like that's right up our alley. We totally love that. So it turns out like he'd never even been backpacking before. Like we thought maybe he was like an outdoorsman and he's like, no, I've, you know, never really done this. And so, uh, but we slept in a, you know, my co-founder Stefan and I, we met at business school at Wharton and, uh, we, we went and slept in a three person tent with this guy and the, the three, I'm six, three, like all three of us are kind of big. And like, we, we all slept in this tent, like shoulder to shoulder and built a, a really fun relationship. And uh, over the years, we continued to stay in touch. And frankly, we got rejected a lot by them too. You know, them continue to say, we really love the brand, but you know, it's just not quite to the size where it makes sense for us to invest yet. And mm -hmm. over the years, we continue to scale and continue to stay in touch and build that relationship. And um, this year, we got to a point where it, was, it felt like it might make sense to approach someone like them to help us go to the next stage of growth. And as they dove into the business, I said, this is exactly what we're looking for. Let's, let's do it. So it was, it was an exciting moment for us, for sure. That's great. Thank you. And then um, there's so many topics we could discuss. We probably only have time for one more, but you've just done this fascinating thing um, where you personally have acquired uh, Spencer Marston, this company that you founded and sold um, years ago, PoolTables.com. So Pool Tables Impact, you sold the company, you're buying it again, like explain this. Yeah, no, it's 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 kind of a random thing. I, you know, I, the business itself is, is kind of random, Pool Tables. Uh, our brand, Spencer Marston, was one that uh, my cousin and I started. My middle name is Marston, and my cousin's middle name was Spencer. And so, <laughs> uh, we, you know, we, when we were right out of college, we started this brand of our own and started selling online and then through retail stores around the country. Um, it was a really great experience, you know, building a business together. And, you know, we learned a lot of lessons. Uh, we sold the business when I was in business school. And, uh, we kind of moved on and, and I still owned a little bit of equity in the business. And so over the last decade, uh, more than a decade since I, since I sold it, I just kind of kept up with what's going on. And the gentleman who bought it from us, he, he owned 17 different businesses and he reached out and said, Hey, Davis, I just want to give you a heads up. We're going to be selling the business. I've got a buyer. He's going to buy it. And I thought, that's great. You know, it was a, it was a public publicly traded company that was going to be buying the business. And I thought that's a great win for him. And, uh, but the more I started thinking about it, the more I thought, man, I don't know if I can let that happen. Like I, uh, 
I know this business so well, and I know the opportunity that that we have to go to go do something really special. And at the time, I didn't. I, I had such a desire to make an impact through business, but I didn't know how to do it. All of our passwords were tied to social impact with that mm-hmm. business, even though the business had no social impact at all. But it was like it was in my head. I just didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to go do good with the business, and I know how to do it now. So I thought, you know, I'm going to go buy that business back. I'm going to convert it to a benefit corporation. And I'm going to go use that business to fight poverty and to go create a more sustainable brand and business in, in this really kind of mature industry that's maybe not that sexy or exciting. And um, so, yeah, very excited. It's a small business. It's, you know, 13 million in revenue and it's, uh, you know, about a million and a half dollars in EBITDA. It's, but it's been profitable for 17 straight years. And it just felt like an opportunity to go do something really special and a fun new challenge. So, uh, so yeah, I bought it and I hired a CEO who started a few weeks ago. And I think he's going to do a great job. And I'm just really thrilled about the opportunity to go try to make another, uh, make a difference with another business. So um, how will this company make a difference? Because it's not, if you said to me, Catherine, you know, we're selling pool tables and so we're going to have a positive impact. <laughs> I'd be puzzled. So how does, yes, uh, and, how does, you know, how this you is, do that? Catherine, this is the beauty of it. Like if I can do good with billiards, you can do good with any business. And uh, so that's what we're out to prove is that it doesn't matter what industry you're in, how big or small the business is, you can make an impact. And so for us, we're going to be using our profits to support poverty alleviation. We're going to specifically be focusing on the nonprofit that was started by that mentor of mine that I mentioned earlier, that was teaching entrepreneurship uh, in the Philippines. And then he expanded to Latin America. Uh, he's taught tens of thousands of people living in poverty, how to create their own businesses. And uh, we're going to be supporting that. Uh, we're also going to be focusing on sustainability. So if you buy a pool table, you know, and uh, you want you you can know where this where that where that wood came from. Did it come from like right now? I have no idea. And I guarantee if you go to a furniture store, a billiard retailer and you say, hey, where did this wood come from? They have no idea. We're going to make it traceable. We want to trace back where the wood came from and make sure that it was that it was harvested sustainably, that we weren't chopping down a rainforest that uh, to, you know, to go, you know, plant palms for palm oil or to, you know, radic, you know, where we're killing orangutans or whatever, like there's a way that we can do this better. And no one in the billiard industry is thinking this way. And so it's going to be a fun challenge for us. Great. Uh, Davis, thank you so much. Fantastic to talk with you and, uh, you know, really exciting that on where you've, where you've come and where you've, and you're growing Cotopoxy. So, uh, just a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. I really appreciate it. Dollars and Change is brought to you by the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. To learn more, visit us at socialimpact.wharton.upenn.edu.